0: One of the most popular films in recent decades was called Back to the Future. It was about a high school teenager named Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox's character. Michael was accidentally returned in 1955 in a plutonium DeLorean automobile time machine created by his eccentric scientist friend named Emmett Doc Brown. Once he was in the past, Marty inadvertently prevented his future parents from meeting. That was problematic because that threatened his actual existence since his future birth was contingent on their meeting and subsequent marriage. So Marty was forced to make certain his parents actually met and fell in love so he could return to the future. Listen to this. The film was conceived in 1980 and wasn't made and released until 1985 because the screenplay uh, was rejected by more than 40 movie studios. According to one source I read, the reason for those rejections was that it wasn't considered raunchy enough to compete with other comedies of that time the budget was 19 million the global box office sales were more than 381 million that incredible profit margin served as demonstrable evidence that forty movie studio heads had no clue it was a huge success so the homework assignment this morning is watch back to the future uh, it's, you'll receive spiritual edification from that or, or maybe not. Daniel chapter 7 is another DeLorean ride return to the more distant past because what we're about to read happened during Belshazzar's reign. Remember Belshazzar was the last Babylonian ruler before the Medes and Persians conquered the Babylonian empire. Starting in verse 1, Daniel received a vision around 553 B.C. Let me set this up. Remember the first half of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, is historical and biographical and focuses primarily on Daniel himself. The second half, chapters 7 through 12, focus on some prophetical revelations Daniel received from God. And those revelations are not are not in chronological order. The first one of those revelatory prophecies is described in Daniel chapter 7. This chapter actually consists of three sections. Those three sections begin where the first verse from each section begins using the words, I saw, I watched, and I was watching. Those three sections are section 1 consisting of verses 2 through 8, describing four beasts that rise out of the sea. Section 2, consisting of verses 9 through 12, describing the vision of the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne. Section 3, consisting of verses 13 through 27, describing Jesus receiving His kingdom as He returns. One more thing to understand as we go through this is that this prophetical revelation in Daniel 7 this dream he receives from God is similar to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 remember that dream that's an important comparison because there's a direct connection a direct parallel between Daniel's dream and Nebuchadnezzar's earlier dream as we are going to see also remember Daniel Chapters 2 through 7 were recorded in the ancient Aramaic language and not traditional ancient Hebrew. Daniel 7 is the most difficult chapter in Daniel to understand and probably the most difficult chapter to teach. But the Masoretic scribes that copied the Old Testament said Daniel 7 was the most significant chapter in the entire Old Testament. I probably shouldn't use the word chapter because at the time this was recorded, there were no chapter divisions. In one sense, it could be considered that, uh, that significant uh, as it is a prophetical comment On the end of time as we understand it. I might interject this footnote. The Old Testament wasn't divided into actual numbered chapters until Stephen Langton around 1227 AD. Langton was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Langton divided the biblical text up into actual numbered chapters, which we have. And then Old Testament. Numbered verses weren't created until a Jewish rabbi named Nathan created them in 1448 A.D. So, Langton created chapter divisions throughout the Old Testament, and then Nathan created verses within those chapter divisions. Um, Imagine reading a biblical text, and there are no chapter and no verse divisions. That would be difficult. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, meaning he had this dream, got up and immediately recorded the dream, telling the main facts. Remember, this dream was a return to a much earlier time when Belshazzar had started his reign, as ruler of Babylonia. Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And he was co-ruler beside his father, Nabonidus. Now don't miss this. That means that what transpires in chapter 7 precedes, precedes, comes before what transpired in chapters 5 and 6. In a strict chronological sense chapter 7 we're about to read part of that chapter 7 fits in between chapters 4 and 5 so this is a serious delorean time machine ride into the past daniel 7 verse 2 daniel spoke saying i saw in my vision by night and behold notice the four winds of heaven were stirring up The great sea the Bible mentions four different seas the Galilean Sea the Dead Sea the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea I might add the Dead Sea and some people in this room have been to the Dead Sea the Dead Sea is the lowest point on ground on the earth The Dead Sea is 1,360 feet below sea level. Does anyone know the lowest point on the North American continent? Death Valley, 282 feet below sea level. The Mediterranean Sea is sometimes called the Great Sea, as it is in the second verse we just read. Commentators see this sea as representing the human population. This sea mentioned in verse 2 represents <clears throat> humanity. Because the Bible often refers to a sea or large bodies of water as masses of people. Most people have heard the phrase, the sea of humanity. Notice Revelation 17 verse 15. Then he said, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits. The waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, nations and tongues tongues meaning languages so this great sea mentioned here in verse 2 represents the human population now notice Daniel sees four winds stirring up that great sea four is a number that has a connection to the earth the wind comes from four possible directions north south east and west so these four winds notice the language used the four winds are stirring up the great sea, are stirring up the earth's population. That means there is human turmoil and chaos and confusion. And we understand that. Historians have attempted to find a particular pattern to all this chaos in world history. But there is no pattern The human historical record reads like mass, unorganized chaos. Verse 3, And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Daniel then describes four beasts. He describes them in language we would attribute to different animals. Notice these are four great beasts, meaning four huge monstrosities, We would consider them to be four human superpowers since these beasts come out from this sea, representing humanity. In Scripture, animals were sometimes used to represent kingdoms. And we still use animals to represent kingdoms or nations. The lion represents Great Britain and has since the Middle Ages. The eagle has represented the United States since 1782. And no, Benjamin Franklin did not lobby for the turkey to be our national symbol. That's an urban legend. Most people have heard about the Russian bear. And that symbolic animal is centuries old. The point is that modern nations sometimes use an animal to represent themselves. And scripture does the same thing. Notice these beasts Daniel sees are each different from one another. The first beast resembled a lion and had wings of an eagle. The second beast resembled a bear and has three ribs in its mouth. The third beast resembled a leopard and has four wings. And the fourth beast, notice, was almost indescribable. There was no modern animal to match that fourth beast. Notice these beasts don't emerge from the sea altogether at once. No instead these beasts come up one after another in sequence. So these are successive historical kingdoms. We didn't mention this earlier but at the time Daniel authored this book there had already been two previous global empires those empires were the Egyptian Empire and the Assyrian Empire the Egyptian Empire and the Syrian Empire were both considered global empires and Daniel was himself part of the third great empire which was Babylonia described in verse 4 notice verse 4 the first meaning the first beast Was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched until its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. This first symbolic beast was a lion and represented the ancient Babylonian Empire. The ancient Babylonian Empire, especially that empire under Nebuchadnezzar. We now know that Babylon's famous Ishtar gates had imprinted onto them winged lions guarding those gates. This is an artist's rendering of those ancient gates. And then this is uh, an archaeological find of one of those lions on those gates. This first beast's wings were plucked off and that was a comment on Nebuchadnezzar being dethroned remember Nebuchadnezzar was dethroned and he suffered from severe mental illness and acting acted as if he were some animal and he was on all fours on the ground he existed in that animalistic state for seven years and then he was permitted to recover from that illness and he got up from all fours and stood on his two feet as all men do he was given a new heart and remember he swore an immediate allegiance to the true God verse 5 and suddenly another beast a second like a bear it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its feet Teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. The second symbolic animal in sequence in, in sequence was a bear. And this bear represented the ancient Media Medo-Persian Empire. The ancient Medo-Persian Empire, which we have discussed. The bears in scripture aren't described as cute teddy bears. Bears are vicious and ferocious animals as were the ancient Medo-Persian armies. This bear had three ribs in its mouth. Representing the fact, the Medo-Persians conquered three other empires and countries. The Medo-Persians conquered Libya, Egypt, and as we know, Babylonia. Also, this bear mentioned in verse 5, was lifted up on one side. And according to historians, that meant one half of that ancient empire was more dominant than the other half. That more dominant half were the Persians. It is said the Persians had some 2.5 million troops. So the Persians took over and subdued the Medes and that's how the Medes became part of the Persian Empire. I might add there is no modern nation that has 2.5 million active non-reserved, active troops. China has 2.185 million active troops. India has 1.445 million troops. And the U.S. is third and has 1.4 million troops. I anticipate our number to decrease, though, as there is an ongoing determination on the part of the left to demilitarize our nation. With China, Russia, and North Korea, and Iraq breathing down our necks, that's probably a big, big mistake. But that's where we are. Verse 6, After this I looked, and there was another, another beast, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it this third symbolic animal was a leopard and this leopard represented the ancient grecian empire historical records document document that Greece defeated the Persians under the command of Alexander who earned the name Alexander the Great because he had been so successful on the battlefield on one instance he and 35,000 Grecian soldiers went up against 300,000 Persian troops and he still defeated them. He was a genius. Notice Greece is represented as a leopard. Leopards hunt using a stealth approach. Most often leopards hide in brush or up in trees and then ambush the prey, pouncing on it so quick it doesn't have a chance to react that animalistic characteristic of a leopard was an appropriate connection to ancient Greece because that's how Greece's military forces operated it is said that General Alexander was the one most responsible in creating the military strategy now called the blitzkrieg in German the word blitzkrieg means lightning war it is a military tactic created calculated to create psychological shock and disorientation in enemy forces through the use of total surprise and speed and superiority in material fire power, firepower or manpower and that's how Alexander's armies fought this leopard had four heads representing the division of the ancient Grecian Empire into four parts under four generals after Alexander died. Alexander had four great generals. Cusander, Lysimachus, C. Lucas, and Ptolemy. Four great generals. Alexander's death was a total shock to the empire, and there was no apparent successor in place. So the Grecian empire was divided among those four men. Notice on the... Uh, The map, starting at the upper left-hand corner of the picture. Cusander received the region of Greece and Macedonia. Lysimachus received Thrace, Bithynia, and most of Asia Minor. C. Lucas received Syria, and most of the Middle East, and Ptolemy received Egypt, Cyrene, and some parts of Arabia. So the animalistic... Symbolism used here is perfect. It matches the historical record. Alexander conquered all that there was to be conquered, except he couldn't conquer himself. How Alexander the Great died at age 32 is still a mystery. One account says he had partied for consecutive days and then collapsed after complaining of searing back pain. Another account said the reason he collapsed was because he attempted to accept a challenge to drink an entire crater of wine at one sitting. A crater was a container that consisted of six quarts of liquid. He attempted to drink six quarts of wine at one sitting. Alexander was a confirmed drunkard, but no one is certain how he died. Verse 7 After this, I, Daniel, saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. There is no modern animal. We can compare this fourth beast, too. This is a strange, terrible and indescribable, monstrous beast that represents the ancient Roman empire. Now, notice something. Notice this chart. Notice how Daniel's dream lines up against Nebuchadnezzar's earlier metallic image from his dream. Notice, starting at the top. The lion from Daniel's dream matches Nebuchadnezzar's image's head made from gold. Second, the bear from Daniel's dream matches Nebuchadnezzar's image's chest and shoulders made from silver. Then third, the leopard from Daniel's dream matches Nebuchadnezzar's image's stomach and thighs made from brass. The terrible beast from Daniel's dream matches Nebuchadnezzar's legs made from iron and notice at the bottom of this chart there this image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen this metallic statue uh, has two legs two feet and ten toes and notice that the ten toes uh, made from iron and clay on Nebuchadnezzar's statue match the ten horns on the head of the fourth beast from Daniel's dream. Ten toes, ten horns. These four beasts we have just mentioned represent four historical governments and empires meaning these four uh, empires are past. But there is something on this fourth beast that is an extension of this fourth empire it represents something futuristic. Notice verse 8. Daniel said, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by their roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. This fourth beast, had ten horns on its head taking into consideration the connection to the ten toes from Nebuchadnezzar's metallic image the consensus is that these ten horns on this fourth beast represent ten heads male or female ten heads of ten kingdoms or ten nations that rule together simultaneously These ten horns represent the ten heads of ten nations that represent the end-time revived Roman Empire. The ten horns represent the ten heads of ten nations that represent the end-time revived Roman Empire. As per the earlier slide, some call the original ancient Roman Empire Rome I, And then the futuristic, in time, revived Roman Empire is called Rome II. There has never been a ten-part Roman Empire. So this has to be futuristic. We all understand the Roman Empire fell. But unlike the previous ancient kingdoms, it never completely vanished. David Jeremiah, who is one of my favorite authors admits that Rome fell in part because of internal corruption and we have mentioned that before but he argues that those modern nations in Western Europe and those nations adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea are still part of what was once the Roman Empire when the Germans and Slavs advanced into Roman territories their princesses intermarried with Roman families Charlemagne was descended from a Roman house almost at the same time that the German Emperor Otto II and the Russian Grand Prince Vladimir intermarried with daughters from the East Roman Emperor. So the old Roman kingdom has, in a sense, continued but without dominion. Most prophetical experts agree that this revised Roman Empire, this emergence of a facsimile of Rome, is also now the present European Union and we have mentioned this earlier the European Union the modern state of Israel was first recognized as a nation in 1948 it's interesting that the revived Roman Empire also originated in 1948 in 1948 the Congress of Europe convened in the Hague Sir Winston Churchill was chairman of that group The European Union currently consists of 27 member nations because Great Britain has exited the EU, remember Brexit. Although Great Britain could at some time rejoin the EU, the total population of the EU countries combined is 447 million people. Some prophetical experts believe that these 10 horns represent those 10 original countries that formed the European Union. And other than Great Britain, those countries are still the primary policy makers of the current European Union. Notice verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. This is interesting. Sort of a side note. Notice Daniel said he was grieved in my spirit Within my body. The original word translated from Aramaic here as body was a word that meant sheath. Sheath. So Daniel's invisible spirit, he said, fit inside his body just as a sword would fit inside a sheath. And that is the same for us. Verse 16 I came near to one of those who stood by. And ask him the truth of all of this. Meaning Daniel said to someone, I don't get this dream. What does this mean? So he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of of these things. Verse 17, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. Now remember, a king isn't a king unless he rules over a kingdom. So these beasts are also kingdoms, empires as we just described them. Verse 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. This fourth beast was especially intriguing to Daniel. He'd never seen something like this before. Notice, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. So this, is, this was one ferocious, Monstrous beast. Verse 20. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Verse 21. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing. Or overcoming against them. Verse 23. Thus he said, this man that is interpreting this dream, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour, devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it into pieces. Verse 24. The ten kings, the ten horns, are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. Verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. The Most High is God Himself. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into His hand for a time and times and half a time. Notice that a smaller and 11th horn comes up from among these 10 horns on the head of this fourth beast and this 11th horn gains enough strength to conquer three of the other horns and then dominates the entire in time empire for reasons we don't have time to get into most prophetical experts agree that this symbolic little horn this smaller and 11th horn has to be the prophetic end time antichrist this is the antichrist in a symbolic sense then notice the phrase then the saints shall be given into his hand meaning into his control for a time and times and half a time that line translates into time singular plus times times isn't just plural meaning it could plural could mean 3 10 13 30 no times means dual two. time singular one plus times two plus half a time in years that is one year plus two years plus one half year equals a total of three and a half years And that is verified in other prophetical texts. Uh, That time period is described as three and a half years. Daniel 9, verse 27. Daniel 12, verse 7. It is described as 42 months. Revelation 11, verse 2. Revelation 13, verse 5. It is described as 121,260 days. Revelation 11 verse 3, and there's a misprint here, it's Revelation, not Daniel, Revelation 12 verse 6. And then it is described as half a week, Daniel 9 verse 27, meaning one half of the 70th, there are 70 prophetical weeks we're going to read about, one half the 70th, meaning the final prophetical week of Daniel's 70 prophetical weeks those are all references to the same period of time and that time period is the second half of the tribulation period the prophetic tribulation period Antichrist will be the global ruler during and throughout that particular period of time he will orchestrate a global government a global religion and a global economy the actual word Antichrist is used just four times in Scripture The Apostle John is the only biblical author that uses that precise word, Antichrist. He uses it in 1 John 2, verse 18, 1 John 2, verse 22, 1 John 4, verse 3, and 2 John, verse 7. Antichrist is a combination word. Notice the prefix anti. Anti means against, something in opposition. So the Antichrist... One is someone that is against Christ. He stands in opposition, direct opposition to Christ. But this prophetical Antichrist is more than that. Second, the Antichrist is also someone that is instead of Christ. He is someone that inserts himself instead of Christ, a pseudo Christ. He is the ultimate substitute for Christ. This prophetical, end time Antichrist has both characteristics. He acts as a substitute for Christ, and he acts against the true Christ. Notice verse 20 reads, That this Antichrist has a mouth which spoke pompous words. And then notice verse 25 reads, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, meaning God. Author Mark Hitchcock Calls Antichrist because of these verses, calls him Mr. Big Mouth. And that's an appropriate name for him. Antichrist isn't some quiet, unassuming character. He will have a pompous mouth, meaning he will be a pretentious, puffed up, pontifical, arrogant bragger. And notice he actually speaks pompous words toward God. That is mind boggling. Who are we as minuscule, finite human beings to boast about ourselves to the infinite creator God of this universe? That's not so, but that's Antichrist. Satan is called the deceiver. Revelation 12, verse 9, reads that he deceives the whole world. He is the ultimate deceiver. And a common tactic Satan uses in deceiving people is to imitate or counterfeit something he's the ultimate counterfeiter God exists as a triune being we all understand this God is one eternal being that exists in three co-equal persons God exists as a father a son, Jesus and a Holy Spirit since Satan is not an eternal being Satan had a beginning God created him Satan doesn't possess all the eternal attributes God does. Still, Satan tries to counterfeit that triune nature. The three counterparts are God the Father is counterfeited in Satan himself. Satan himself. God the Son, Jesus, is counterfeited in the Antichrist. This Antichrist... And God, the Holy Spirit, is counterfeited in the false prophet. The false prophet is an associate to Antichrist. Since Jesus was God in actual human form, some believe Antichrist is Satan in actual human form. That just as Jesus was God incarnate, so Antichrist is Satan incarnate. 1 John 2, verse 18. John said, Little children... It is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist, singular, the Antichrist, this prophetical man, is coming. There are different names for this Antichrist. He is described as the little horn, here in Daniel 7, verse 8. He is described as a fierce king, Daniel 8, verse 23. He is described as the prince who is to come, Daniel 9, verse 26. He is described as a vile person. Daniel 11, verse 21. He is described as the worthless shepherd. Zechariah 11, verse 17. Antichrist is described as the man of sin or lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. He is described as the son of perdition, meaning son of destruction, son of damnation, son of hell. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. He is described as the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. And he is described, his last name that is used to describe him in the biblical record is the beast, the beast, Revelation 13 verse 1. Antichrist is called the beast 36 times in Revelation. So this prophetical Antichrist is the ultimate culmination of all blasphemers all false prophets all false teachers and all false Christ he is the ultimate hypocrite liar counterfeit and ultimate deceiver he doesn't sign his name mister Antichrist he uses another name but his true identification is this prophetical Antichrist notice three particular Antichrist characteristics One, Antichrist will be a Gentile. A Gentile. This is debatable. Not all prophetical experts agree on this. Some teach that Antichrist will be Jewish. I don't accept that. I believe Antichrist will come from the geographical region of the revived Roman Empire, which is primarily Gentile in origin. Besides, Antichrist will persecute the Jewish people It seems nonsensical to me that a Jewish man would want to commit Jewish genocide. I believe he's a Gentile. Second, Antichrist will be an extraordinary human being. He will be an attractive man, a legitimate genius, and he will possess unusual giftedness. Third, Antichrist will have enormous public appeal enormous public appeal because antichrist is described in scripture as a beast some people have the mistaken notion that antichrist will be a repulsive person since beasts are repulsive in nature no just the opposite he will have incredible personal charisma he will attract people to himself on the note sheet there is a partial in times timeline this chronological timeline um, is from a pre tribulation, premillennial dispensational perspective. That is the dominant prophetical position throughout evangelicalism at the moment. If someone has a different uh, prophetical perspective, then, and that's fine, uh, then this timeline is going to read different than this one. Notice one, the first prophetical happening on this chronological timeline is the rapture the church is raptured or rescued from off the earth first Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18 first Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 54 meaning all genuine Christians both alive and dead from throughout the church age are caught up off the earth in a microsecond to meet Jesus and are then escorted into heaven the rapture is considered to be imminent imminent meaning that there is no other biblical prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture before the rapture happens the rapture could happen before the second service Amen. Amen. absolutely number 2 on this chronological timeline is the tribulation period the tribulation period. This is the reason this is called the pre-tribulation rapture position. Pre meaning prior to, previous to before the rapture happens, before the tribulation period begins. Now some disagree and we don't have time to get into that. Uh, And that's fine if they place the rapture at a different point but I believe it is pre-tribulation. At The tribulation is a seven year period consisting of 21 separate divine judgments. This entire period is where God judges the earth and the inhabitants of the earth. All hell is let loose on earth. We think things are not good now. This is nothing, nothing compared to the tribulation period. There is an undetermined, most people aren't aware of this, an undetermined time period between the rapture itself after millions and millions of Christians are, have vanished from off the earth, there's a time period between the rapture and the actual beginning of the tribulation period. At that time, this Antichrist will have become a dominant political person from the European Union, and the tribulation period actually begins at the moment this Antichrist signs a peace agreement with Israel, promising to protect Israel from its enemies. I'm assuming we all understand that Israel is hated. (laughs) Someone described the nation of Israel as a fantastic house in a really bad neighborhood. (laughs) Its neighbors hate it. Israel wants peace. Antichrist will facilitate that peace temporarily. And that peace agreement that is signed will initiate the tribulation period. Number three is the battle of Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog founded Ezekiel 38 and 39. Let me just touch on this. From a historical perspective, Magog was a grandson of Noah. Magog's descendants settled to the region far north of Israel in Europe and Asia. That is Magog. Gog is a person from Magog. Most commentators interpret Magog as Russia. There are a number of reasons that is the guess. One is Russia is straight north of Israel, stretching to the Arctic Circle. Magog is probably Russia. During the first part of the tribulation period, although some commentators place this battle of Gog and Magog just before the start of the tribulation period. I don't, but some do. During that first half of the tribulation period, an army, a massive army, from the north, meaning Russia, with other countries from the Middle East and Africa, will invade Israel. Countries such as Iran, Libya, Sudan, part of modern Turkey, and others. This huge alliance will invade Israel attempt to invade Israel because their attempt is going to be unsuccessful because God himself will intervene and stop them the devastation and carnage will be so extensive it will take seven months to bury all the dead after God is finished Yea, God number four the abomination of desolation The abomination of desolation, which we will discuss. This happens at the exact midpoint of the tribulation period. Meaning after the first three and a half year period, the first three and a half half of the tribulation period, Antichrist is going to reverse his decision. He will break his peace agreement with Israel. He will turn on Israel. He will become an extreme anti-Semite. He will become the ultimate global ruler and he will begin to persecute both Jewish people and Christians. I might add large numbers of Jewish people will turn to Jesus as Messiah and Savior during this time. And Gentiles are going to receive Christ. Probably though most of them are going to be beheaded or die as martyrs during that time. The second three and a half year half of the tribulation period will be much much more intense and severe than the first half number five the battle of Armageddon mark 14 verse 62 Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 the battle of Armageddon Jesus and his armies of Saints and if we are one of his we are participants in this uh, Jesus and his armies returned from heaven he saved Jerusalem from annihilation He defeats the armies of the nations, fighting fighting under the auspices of Antichrist. And then the Antichrist and his associate, this false prophet, are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. No more problem. Number six, the judgment of the nations. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. God will judge those that survived the tribulation period. God separates the righteous from the unrighteous as separating sheep from ghosts. The righteous enter the messianic reign and the unrighteous are cast into hell. It is also possible that the Old Testament saints will be raised from the dead at that time. Number seven is next time. We're saving number seven until next time. Now the remaining portion of this message and we might probably aren't going to be able to Include as we anticipate. But one of the most common questions about end time prophecies is who is the Antichrist? Let me explain who the Antichrist is. In the end times, someone is going to emerge from Europe to become the greatest political r- ruler of all time. In the beginning, he's going to use incredible diplomatic deceit to position himself as the head of a confederation of Europe nations, probably. The European Union. He's extremely dynamic and charismatic, and will seem to be able to manufacture solutions to international problems. If Antichrist is alive this morning, and, and that's possible, if he's alive at this moment, then he probably doesn't understand exactly who he is. He doesn't become the Antichrist until Satan possesses him and enables him to deceive both Europe. And Israel. The Jewish nation won't see this Antichrist under the guise of another name as the promised Messiah, but that nation will receive him as a sincere friend and a significant political person in the global community. And because of that, Israel will put its trust in this man to create for them a peaceful solution to their ongoing problems in the Middle East one of the myths about Antichrist is that people are so enamored with him that all the nations just automatically surrender their sovereignty to him the Bible doesn't teach that and I might add that is also contrary to common sense because Africa Asia and Latin America have spent more than a century casting off European colonialism so it would be illogical for them to turn around and receive a European dictator People are super curious to know the identification of Antichrist. It is a common subject. So some people use a combination letter and number system to guess at his name. This is a review. A review of a recent message. Uh, This is. Let me explain that. In the English language, letters are different from numbers. Letters are different from numbers. Example, the letter P... And the number 53 are totally unrelated. There is, no comp- there is no connection between P and 53. There is a complete disconnect between P and 53. Because in English, letters are different from numbers. But that is not the case in some other languages. At the time John wrote this, um, this prophetical situation about Antichrist, at the time John wrote this, there was in existence a numerical identification system that under the arrangement of certain alphabets, such as ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, and Latin, different letters were related to different numbers. Each letter from those alphabets were assigned a different numerical equivalent. Uh, for example, the New Testament was originally written in an ancient form of Greek, which is now considered a dead language. It was called Koine Greek, K O I N E. It wasn't classical Greek, the Greek philosophers used. It was a more common form of the Greek language. The first letter of the Greek alphabet is Alpha. Alpha corresponded to the number one. The second letter is Beta. Beta corresponded to the number two. The third letter is Gamma. Gamma represents the number three. The fourth letter is Delta. Delta represents the number four. The fifth letter, Epsilon, represents the number 5. The ninth letter, Iota, represents the number 10. I could be mistaken, but I have read that there is no Greek letter that corresponds to the number 6. That's what I've read. The tenth letter, Kappa, represents the number 20. The thirteenth letter, Nu, represents the number 50. The eighteenth letter, Sigma, represents the number 200 the twenty-fourth and last letter is Omega and represents the number 800 in reciting the Greek alphabet that reminds me of an experience I had as a college freshman I was attending a Christian a private Christian uh, University I had pledged to a private Christian fraternity on campus called Alpha Omega don't know why I did it It it's kinda stupid but I did I pledged and during that month and a half pledge period one night a group of about A dozen frat members came into our dorm, hauled me out of bed at 3 a.m., brought me to the frat house, sat me down in a circle, and gave me a match. Told me to light the match, then turn the match upside down and recite the Greek alphabet before it burned my fingers. I was able to do that, but I didn't appreciate the exercise, and I didn't appreciate the timing, but I did that. So almost all the different Greek alphabetical letters were assigned a numerical equivalent. Now let me demonstrate how that relates to Antichrist. Revelation chapter 13 describes the beast, this beast, Antichrist, and the false prophet. Notice Revelation 13 verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So it seems that the number 666 is a clue to the identification of the beast or Antichrist. The problem is, although we know the total number of Antichrist's name is 666, we cannot know his actual name unless we are able to determine the letters of his name from that numerical equivalent. So these amateur Christian numerologists play these number and name games and create Uh, sophisticated techniques to determine what letters correspond to the numbers in his name. That practice is called Gematria. Gematria. Notice the definition. Gematria is the practice of assigning a numerical value to each letter of a word or name and then combining those numerical values together to arrive at a total number. So to determine the name from the number of that name, such as 666, we have to do gematria in reverse notice the numeric equivalent of the name of the beast is 666 and people have used different alphabets in order to determine the name that is equivalent to that number 666 I have read some interesting examples people have suggested that the name Nimrod fits 666 and so does Nero Napoleon Genghis Kong John Paul II, Juan Carlos from Spain, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Mussolini, Anwar Sadat, Henry Kissinger, John Kennedy, and we can go on and on. I understand Billy Graham's name, using a certain gematria technique, could also total 666. It is probable that our own name might total 666 if we tried enough mathematical gymnastics. To me, it is an exercise in futility to attempt to determine the name of the Antichrist from its numerical equivalent, 666. We don't know who the Antichrist is. We do know he is probably not who we think he is. If God felt it was important for us to know his identification, he would have told us. But he didn't tell us, so we don't need to know, and we need to be okay with that. I heard about a class at a Christian university called the End Times, a course on eschatology, prophetical matters. The students in that class were given an in-class assignment one morning. The assignment was to write, and this was an open book assignment, to write two short essays during class time. One paper on the Antichrist and one paper on Jesus, the authentic Christ, the class ended and the teacher had each student turn in his assignment as he exited the classroom. There was one student though that was still sitting there, writing after the other students and left the room. The teacher said to that student, uh, uh, listen, uh, class time is over. You, you need to turn in your assignment. The student gave the professor his papers and started to walk out. Then the professor said, wait a second, uh, something's missing. There's no paper here on the antichrist the student turned around and said prof I'm sorry I was so focused on Jesus Christ I didn't have time for the antichrist and that is where we all ought to be let's stand to our feet would we everyone standing father in heaven thank you for what we've learned Um, I hope and pray that it will make sense there's a lot of stuff in here I really pray God that uh, our focus in these final days will not be on Antichrist and who the Antichrist might be but our focus will be on your son the Lord Jesus Christ our concern shouldn't be about Antichrist our concentration should be on your son Christ and his return for us and I pray that it is soon I pray the same prayer that John prayed as he said, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this message. Use it to make a difference in each one of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.